Bad news. Bad news. 31 killed, 170 injured in the Brussels bombing. Bad news. Bad news. Millions lost in 401k investments. Bad news. Bad news. It's told that the average American is going to pay $245,000 to raise one child. That's bad news. Bad news. Bad news. In addition, the average American couple is going to pay $279,000 in their lifetime in interest alone. Bad news. Bad news. It's estimated in this coming year that nearly 2 million children will be sold into the sex trade globally. Every day it seems like we wake up and we're faced with more bad news. We have bad news coming at us in all directions. And this is just, this is just scratching the surface. This is just getting started. We haven't talked about the bad news of what's happening in many marriages or the bad news of what's happening in our job loss or the bad news of how immorality has affected the home. There's bad news all over the place. In fact, it's difficult sometimes just to get out of bed because we're faced with depressing news every day before our foot hits the ground. Now here's some more bad news. Bad news, bad news. The mortality rate in human history is nearly 100%. Here's the reality. We're all going to die. We're going to face the grave. It is a fact that we are going to face the grave. And that can be some very bad news if you have uncertainty as to what is after the grave. But I want you to know in that last statement, there was actually some good news in there. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? I said nearly 100% of all humanity has died or will die. I say nearly because there is one person in human history. Yes, he did die. But he rose again from the dead. And over 500 witnesses verified that this was a fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. This turns a lot of bad news into good news because it turns the tables on all the negative news. Because if this is true, if this is a fact, then my Bible says this. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says that this good news allowed Jesus to become, get this, to become the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey. Do you get that? The source, not a source, the source of salvation. In other words, there is no other way amongst men by which we can be saved. It is only through our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and only those that surrender to him and accept the gift of salvation, those are the ones that are going to experience eternal life, eternal salvation with Jesus Christ. And if that is you, guess what? My Bible says that there's more good news. 
There's more good news because we are more than conquerors for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we're told. There's even more good news for us because my Bible says because of this good news, there is nothing, there is nothing that will separate me from the love of God. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. My Bible says that this good news gives us a victory from within. Because my Bible says, greater is he who is in me than he who is within the world. My Bible says that this good news allow us to know the power of the resurrection so that we get the privilege of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. My Bible says that this good news makes us ambassadors for God so that now we offer out the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, making the world one with God. That's our ministry. My Bible says that no matter how much bad stuff comes my way, no matter how much comes my way, that the good news is that I am a child of God forever secure and that I am in the Father's hand and that there is no one that can snatch me out of the Father's hands. And my Bible says that the good news says that the sting of death is gone. The sting of death is gone. It says in the scriptures, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, we have this good news because Jesus is risen. He has risen indeed. Jesus has risen he is risen indeed. Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. And my friends, this turns the table on all the bad news. Because now we don't live in the gloom of the bad news. We live in the light of God's good news. God, thank you. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the gospel that you have given to us. Thank you that today we stand before you as your children. And Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. But Lord, I pray for the ones here that may not completely understand, that have walked, they have been distant from you. They have not come to know you. I pray that your spirit would help them understand today that we would all be one, that we would be children of God, and that we would walk with you today in power. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Today, if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, we're going to be looking at verse 33 through chapter 12 of verse 3. Now, this is the capstone passage to everything we have been looking at in the last 11 weeks. For those of you that may have not been here in the last 11 weeks, we have been taking a journey of looking at unlikely heroes of the faith people that are ordinary people that God did extraordinary things through. But one of the things that we saw as a pattern is that these unlikely heroes were all people that were looking for a promise. 
They were all looking for a promise to come, and that promise was the Messiah. They were all looking for this Redeemer that would come and save mankind. They constantly were looking for this promise. Now, in this journey of faith, we've learned several lessons. We've learned that, one, God uses imperfect people to do his work. God delights in using imperfect people. Congratulations, you qualify. Because I know you're imperfect, just like I know I'm imperfect. Number two, we learn that faith has more to do with the one that we are trusting in than really our abilities. It's about him. And third, we learn that if God says it, he will do it. And that we can trust in that. Now, what we're going to look at today is we're going to see that actual faith has substance. It has a, a fulfillment to the promise. All these people throughout Old Testament history that were looking to the promise, looking to the promise, we are going to see it come into fulfillment by the time we get into chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, because we're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. But before we get there, we're going to finish the last part of chapter 11 and look at a few more categories of people that were looking for the promise. And there's two categories. The first categories are victors who conquered. Take a look at your Bibles in verse 33. Who through faith, there's that word again, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now in this first classification, it's the classification I want to be in. I want to be with the conquerors. I want to be with the victors. This is an unbelievable list of individuals. Now, if you were to take time and examine the Old Testament, you would see one story after another come to fulfill each one of these phrases. For example, we know that Joshua and David, they conquered kingdoms. We know that. If you read the scriptures, you'll find that out. We know that Joshua, Judges, Samuel, David, and Solomon, we know that they enforced justice. We know that there were many promises received by many different people. We know that Daniel stopped the mouth of lions. We know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what did they do? Well, they quenched the fires. We know that David and Elijah and Elisha escaped the edge of the sword. We know that many of the prophets were made strong. Even though they were weak, God made them strong for battles, and he put many foreign enemies on flight. We know that God used Elijah to bring back the dead of the son of the widow of Zephyrah. We know that God used Elisha to raise the Shuhamite son from the dead. We could devote ourselves to years in looking at all of these unbelievable victories. We don't have time for that. But what we can do is we can look and see in just this, this listing that God used faithful fallible people because they trusted in a faithful, infallible God. So how does that apply to you and I? Here's our first faith principle. The first faith principle is that God is the source of all victories. Dear church, we need to be reminded of that. 
we need to be reminded that it's not the pastor that's the source of the victories. It's not a political leader that's the source of the victories. It's not even the husband. It's not even the wife that are the source of the victories. My friends, it's not you. It's God. It's God all the time. And sometimes we have a problem. We have a problem called spiritual amnesia. Have you ever experienced it? Where we forget all the victories of God in our past because of our current circumstances. Oh, the gloom. Oh, the, the, the agony of what I'm going through. It's so hard, God. And we start to question God. And we start to fade away from God. But do we need to forget or should we not forget that God has been faithful in the past? He is faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the present. And he will be faithful in the future. We need to apply Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What does it say? Don't lean on your what? Own understanding. But we are to trust God in all things. Why? Because he's the source of all the victories. The victories that he wants to have in every one of your lives. In my life. So here's the second category of people. It's very in stark contrast to the first. It's those who suffered. Take a look at the middle part of 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. In other words, they were martyred. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, destitute afflicted, mistreated of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Notice how different this category is. Who wants to be in this category? Uh, we don't exactly want to volunteer for it. This is a difficult category. This is a category where we suffer now, many of these people, we don't even know who they are necessarily in the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't make the headlines, but God still recognizes them. Some of them were prophets, though. Some of them were prophets that had to speak a message in the days that were very evil, in the days where people were, it was very unpopular to speak about the living God. We kind of know those days today, don't we? And some of those people paid with their own life. They suffered to the point of death. A couple weeks ago, back in actually February, we had a man named Philip Smith who spoke here. He is a man who has a ministry in Egypt, and we're beginning to build a relationship and just learn more about him. And he spent time with the elders. And he spent time with our staff. And we were so encouraged to hear how they are equipping people, believers, Sudani believers, to go in to the volatile nature of Sudan and into Iraq and into Iran and to surrounding areas, some of the most difficult places in the world. He's training leaders that are basically going out with a death march. Some of these people, and he told us, he said, shared the victories. He said, there's incredible things. Christ is being known in that part of the world and people are coming to faith in Christ, but it's at a cost. The people in the Sudan are dying because of their faith. You see, this is happening in the world today. These verses here, they fly in the face of those that would hold to a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. 
those that would say, God wants you to be happy and he wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be prosperous. Explain that to these saints. I know some that would say, you know what? If Christianity weren't true, it would still be the greatest life to live. Really? Maybe here in America, but not in the Sudan, not in many other places in the world. It has to go deeper than that. It has to go better, deeper than a comfortable life. It has to be based on something solid. It has to be based on Jesus Christ. See, this, here's the faith principle that we gain here. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has to be our strength. He has to be our purpose because we will have him in the most difficult times of our life. He has to be the anchor to our soul. He has to be the anchor to our soul. Church, I'm talking to you today and I'm asking that you realize that God is not about promising prosperity. The reality of Scripture, the weight of Scripture basically says there's going to be hardships in this life. There's going to be difficulties in this life. There's going to be trials in this life. And some of us become disillusioned when those kind of things happen in our life. We have to have Christ as the anchor to our soul. One of my favorite memory verses is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul has just talked about the resurrection of Christ. And then he says to the believers, because they have this message of the resurrection, he says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work, the mission of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now think about those words. Why did Paul say that? Because he knew the message wouldn't be popular. He knew that the work would be difficult. But he says, be steadfast, immovable. I believe that's a message that God would give us today on this Easter morning. Church, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I don't got time for the work of the Lord. Really? That's what we were created for. This is what he wants us to do. He wants us to abound. He wants us to be firm. He wants us to do that. Now, here's my fear. I have a fear that some of us are living a wishy-washy life, that we are getting blown here and there. Ephesians says, don't do that. The reality is he's warning against it because it happens all the time. James talks about being double-minded and blown, being blown here and there. And God says, no, 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 I want you to be firm. I want you to stand firm. I want you to, 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 to be solid in me. And some of us, what we're doing is we're trying to put stock in the relationships. And we're holding on to those relationships and saying, that has to stabilize me. We're trying to put our stability in our work. We're trying to put our stability in our, our things. We're even trying to put our stability in our church. And I want you to know that none of those things, even though work is good, though church is good, relationships are good, none of those are meant to give you stability. The only stability that you will get is if you find the rock of Jesus Christ and make him firm in your life. That's what we have to have. Hebrews chapter 6 says that Jesus Christ is the anchor to our soul, firm and secure. Is he the anchor to your soul? 
Or honestly, are you kind of wishy-washy? Kind of go to church, kind of don't go to church. Kind of go to community groups, or no, I'm not a part of that. I'm just kind of the here and there and being blown about. Whatever I feel like every week. That's no way to live. That's no way to live. Jesus says that we have to submit ourselves to him. And when we do, when we learn him and we lean on him and he is our rock, then he becomes our strength. He becomes our purpose in the midst of difficulties. Because my friends, storms will come. Storms will come. They will come in our life. That's a guarantee. Well, we move on to the last two verses. And the last two verses are kind of transitional to get us to chapter 12. But take a look at this because it's going to state something in these last two verses of Hebrews that's really important. It basically is showing us that all these victors, all these people of the past, they longed for one thing, the promise. Look at what it says in verse 39. And all of these, talking about these saints, they, though commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised. If you look back in verse 13, you'll see the same thing was said. Since, and then it goes on, it says, since God has provided something better for us as believers in Christ, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is he saying here? See, he's saying that all these people in the past, they were longing for something. They were longing for a promise. They knew that there was a promise that was coming, and they were working towards it, but none of them ever received it. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, Steve, I need a little refresher here. Uh, tell me again what the promise is. Help me understand where was that promise given? Well, it was given back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. Remember what God said to Abraham? He said, through your family, I am going to bless all the ethnoses, all the nations of the earth, all the people groups of the earth. He says, it's going to come through your family. The whole world will be blessed. See, Abraham took that as a promise, and he passed it on to his son, and he passed it on to his son, and down the line, and every one of these people in Hebrews 11 knew of the promise, and they looked forward to it because they knew it was about a Messiah. They knew that there was a Messiah that would come and that he would be a redeemer to mankind, and they longed for that to happen, and they looked for it to happen, but it did not take place in their time. The Jewish people also looked forward to a land that would be their own. Abraham said he looked forward to a city whose architect and builder is God. They believed that the Messiah would sit on the throne of that city. And they longed for it. But there was a void because it didn't happen in their life. Now here's the faith principle that applies to you and I. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills. Now, this faith principle addresses the void that only Christ can fill. And I am speaking to some of us that have been trying to fill our life with so many things that isn't, of, uh, that isn't giving us that, that, that fulfillment that we need. We long for heaven. We long for something different. C.S. Lewis once said, If I find, my, find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Was made for another world. 
That's what God has created us for. Church, what's your fulfillment in? Is it in things? Is it in status? Is it in power? Is it in people? If it's in those things, you're missing out. It's only meant to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know how in grade school, in, in teaching children's church, the answer that every child gives is Jesus? Okay, what's the answer to this? Jesus. What's the answer to that? Jesus. Well, today, that's the message. The answer to every one of these points is Jesus. And finally, we get to the apex of the passage, to, to chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where we see that the victor who is the promise, and the victor is Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promise. But take a look at the poetic way in which the writer of Hebrews stresses this. And this is where the resurrection comes in. This is where Christ the Messiah comes in. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is he seated at the right hand of the throne of God? It's because he's resurrected. He is a resurrected Lord and he ascended on high and he sits on the throne in control. He continues on, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's go immediately to the faith principle, the last one. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Remember? What's the answer? Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. And what I like here is that we see a step-by-step -step prescription of what a victor in Christ today should do. This is how you become a victor in Christ. This is how you, be a, this, you become a conqueror. Even though you may suffer, this is how you become a conqueror. This is the, the way that we become a believer in Jesus Christ. And it will parallel what Jesus did. He, went to, he died for sin. He died, he, there was a death, there was a burial, there was a resurrection. This is what he says. Step one, we're to lay aside our sin. We're to lay aside our sin. He says, lay aside every weight and sin. Now let's think about that with Christ first. Did he lay aside sin? He didn't have to lay aside sin because he had no sin. But here's what he did. He took on sin. You lay it aside, and this is the deal. You get rid of all your sin, and he takes it all upon himself. Not a fair exchange, is it? But that's what he did for us. This is what we're told in 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Let us think about that for a minute. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He did not have a speck of sin. He, did, he was flawless in his life because he was perfect. But because of his great love, he had you in mind. He had me in mind. He took on all of our sin. What he did on the cross was a pavement for what you deserve to pay for, but he took it on himself. 
he became sin for us so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What an awesome exchange. We get his righteousness. He gets my sin. We're told in Colossians chapter 2 what the cross accomplished. It accomplished the ability so that we could be forgiven. Forgiveness. It says he forgave us of all of our sin. Having canceled the written code, I'll talk about that in a minute, with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away and nailed it to the cross. Do you realize that every time you sin in thought, in action, there's a record of that? There's a record. It is recorded in the law. The law records that you're out of bounds, that you went against God, that you violated his truth. And all of these things in a court case on a day of reckoning, when you stand before the judge, he will look at these things and say, guilty, 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 if you pay for it yourself. But what he did is he made the provision in advance so that it could be nailed to the cross so that your sins could be paid for. Someone has to pay for sin. And Jesus Christ willingly did it for you and for me. And all we have to do is surrender over. See, this is where our responsibility comes in. He says we are to get rid of every weight and sin. What does that mean? Well, both phrases mean something. Every weight was especially dressing the Jewish audience. See, the weight for them was the law. They tried to fulfill the law. The Jewish people, they would try to observe the law, and somehow they thought that the, by observing the law, it would make them good with God. Remember the rich man that came? I've kept all the laws. I've kept all the commands. Really? Then go sell everything that you have. Oh, guess I haven't. See, they thought that they obtained righteousness through keeping the law. It's kind of like today. We have our own way of obtaining righteousness. People go to church. They become religious. Somehow there's a metamorphosis that takes place as soon as you enter into the doors of the church. All of a sudden, I'm good with God. I've done something good before God. My friends, the law didn't save them. The church building doesn't save you. We are still in a wicked condition because we have to deal with it on a very personal level. And the call here is to abandon everything that you think makes you good with God. He says, get rid of sin. The word sin is the word that means to fall short to miss the mark. The word sin describes what we do best in life. It is the motto of our life. We don't use the word sin, but we do it in different ways. It means I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want to. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm going to be in the driver's seat. I'm going to call the shots. In other words, I'm going to be a little God. I'm going to be God of my life. We don't really say that. We don't have the audacity to say that. But when we are addicted to ourselves and we say, yeah, God, it's good. I'd rather just go to church on Sunday once in a while. Some, some people, the low bar is Christmas and Easter. And some people, the high bar is every single week. And they think it makes them right with God. And God says, no, 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 no. 
Let's deal with your sin. You have to surrender. See, the application here is that he wants us to yield control, but this is very difficult for us to do because we are addicted to ourselves. We are addicted to calling the shots. And coming to Christ in salvation means you lay it all before him. You no longer have any rights. You are yielding it all to Jesus. He now becomes the commander of your boat. He's the driver. He's taking the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. He's the one who is in control. And you are saying, yes, Jesus, I submit everything. I give over my sin. I yield completely to you. And when we do that, it's salvation. You're allowing his blood to cover your sins. In a moment, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And those that have never really done that, I'm going to give you the opportunity that if that's what you need, let's start today. But the passage continues on. And the passage tells us the second step, that we need to run the race that God has set before us. Now notice the beautiful metaphor that he uses here. He uses the metaphor of Olympic runners in a stadium. And in this stadium, it's filled with witnesses. Now these witnesses are different than the witnesses in our own arenas. Because our arenas, there's the prime specimen of, of athletes that are on the floor and everybody else that needs to get some athletic uh, uh, training in their life. They're eating, they're yelling, they're trying to tell the players what to do and they couldn't do it themselves. No, 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 this isn't that scenario. The, the witnesses are all those that have gone before us. It's all these Old Testament saints and they're in the stands and they're cheering us on because they know that we now have the fulfillment of the promise, the Messiah in our life. We have Jesus Christ, what they long for. Also in the stands, above the stand is the throne, the throne of God. And it says that Jesus is in that throne. Do you realize what it took? Because he's saying we got to run a race, but he's not asking us to do what he hasn't done himself. He did the heavy lifting, my friends. He ran the race. He went to the cross. He died on that cross. He was buried, and then he rose again. Then he showed himself to witnesses, and he ascended to heaven. Now, I want you to know, he's not on the throne just twiddling his thumbs. He's actually working. He is working for your success. This is what my Bible says in Romans chapter 8. It says, Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. Do you know that Jesus is interceding for your success today? Do you realize that? Here's the other thing that he's doing. We're told in 1 John, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He's our advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Why? Because we have an accuser. He's going to go before the Father. He's going to say, they did this, they did this, they did this. And Jesus is going to say, they're covered under the blood. They're covered under the blood. They're covered under the blood. They're my child. He is our advocate. You see, your job is to simply run the race God has set out for you. God did the heavy lifting for you. 
Do you realize that he became alive first so that you could become alive? And believe me, he did resurrect your corpse. Do you realize Ephesians chapter 2 says that you were dead? I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And then in verse 3 it says, but God. But God rose us to life. God intervened. He gave us life. And why did he give us life? Did you ever think about that? Why did he raise our dead corpse? He rose us because he wants us to be a part of his mission. He wants us to be a part of his work. And that is what he has called us to do. We are to be his ambassadors. You want to see something cool? In the scriptures, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he uses this verse. He says, when he ascended on high, talking about Jesus, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but what Paul was doing was, was using an image of a war hero who had conquered and defeated the enemy, and it was going to his hometown to the people that were on his team. And because of the victory, he was sharing the, the bounty of the victory. He was giving the gifts of the victory over to everybody around. And what's interesting is the Apostle Paul then goes and talks about spiritual gifts. And what he is implying is due to the resurrection and that victory, the bounty, the gift that he has given to each one of us is a spiritual ability that he has placed in each one of us. And so whenever we use our spiritual gift, guess what? We are proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming the victory that God has given us. What an awesome thing. But what does it say when we don't use our gifts? What does it say when we don't work for God? What does it say about that victory? See, my friends, what God wants is for us to participate. My dream as a pastor is that we would have our mission in complete view. That's why we call ourselves Mission View. That we would have our mission in view and that we would understand how God has designed us and that we wouldn't be on the sidelines. And if we need to get healed, we get healed. We get mended up, but we get on the front lines for God and that we are working for the gospel, that we are sharing this good news. In a moment, I'm going to pray for you for the challenges if you are running that race. If you're not, you can rededicate your life to doing that. Here's the last point. In the very last verse, he says, Consider him who endured uh, from sinners such hostilities against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. We're to endure. God wants us to endure. We're to keep our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the object of our faith. As a woman keeps her eyes on a focal point in the midst of the contraction and giving and bringing a child into the world, we're to keep our eyes on Christ, who is our focal point in the midst of all the difficulties and the contractions of life. And God knows that we are going to have hard times. That's why he says, consider him who endured such hostility. Consider him. Jesus did first what he wants us to do. He wants us to endure. 
and we are to just keep our eyes on Christ and not give up. In a moment, I'm going to pray for those that feel like giving up. And so what I want you to do is, I want you to reflect during this last song, and in the middle of the song, I'm going to come back, and I'm just going to lead you in prayer in those three categories. Laying aside our sin, running our race, enduring.